0: So today we have in the studio with us, Lydia Bihan. Lydia, welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So Lydia, we've known each other for quite some time now, but a lot of people, um, especially even people in Ireland, they may not be too familiar with yourself because you spent quite a number of years in Toronto before moving mm-hmm. back to Ireland. So if you could share with us a little bit about your background, how
1: you got into security. Sure, absolutely. So yeah, I've... I've- moved back. I keep saying I've just moved back. I've actually been back about a year now. Mm -hmm. I guess time just flies. So I've been living in Toronto for the past seven years. I started out, I suppose maybe I didn't have a typical cybersecurity journey. I started out as most sort of 16, 17-year-olds in Ireland do, having a look through the CAO and frantically trying to find something that suited. And I came across a very niche course this computer science with linguistics and French. And I thought that ticks all the boxes. I really love technology and I love languages. So I got into this course, did quite well in it for a few years, but realized I was gonna end up on this academic track, looking at doing a PhD, which didn't really suit where I wanted to go. Started looking for something a little more practical and ended up in doing a master's in security and forensics out in DCU. Had an amazing time doing that it piqued my interest in all things technology and investigations. After that, then I got offered an opportunity over in Toronto to work in forensics at PwC. And, you know, I weighed up the the sort of the pros and the cons and what could possibly go right, what could go wrong, and decided it was worth taking, you know, a calculated risk to go over there. Um so... Handed in my dissertation, two days later, I think I was on a plane to Toronto, didn't know a single person in the city, jumped straight into a job there, working in forensics and e-discovery. Stayed at PwC then for five years, uh, moving between forensics and then into more of the security side. After that then, I was still really interested in the side of investigations. um, And I came across a job at uh, TD Bank and TD is probably not particularly known here in Ireland. It is one of the largest North American banks, uh, but I've definitely had a few blank looks anytime I mentioned TD over here. It's Canada's biggest bank, and I worked there in fraud and financial crimes. And just then, for personal reasons, after about a year of working there, I decided it was time to move home, time to move back to the motherland. So that sort of brought me on my journey back here. It's...
0: I suppose your journey is slightly different to mine, not in the sense of career, but moving away. You moved Mm -hmm. away to start your career and move back home, whereas I started my career in Singapore where Singapore's home for me and I've now moved away. How did it feel coming home and I mean, you've been back for about a year now, but how does mm-hmm. how did it feel at the start when you just moved back?
1: Yeah, I think it, it was an unusual feeling. A lot of people kept saying, oh, you know, you're going home, you're going to something familiar. But as you said, yeah, I never actually worked here. Mm-hmm. I left within days, as I said, of, of completing my master's. So I suddenly moved back to a country where I had no network outside of obviously family and friends. But I lost this huge network that I had grown in Toronto. That I'd spent years and years trying to make connections with people, spending a lot of time building that network, and suddenly coming back to no knowing nobody. It was a bit of a culture shock, <laughs> reverse culture shock. I've heard it.
0: Yeah,
1: kind of talked to us. Yeah. Um, so it was a bit of a shock. Now I feel a lot more settled. But it is. It's even a year in. It's still a lot of effort in terms of trying to build out my own network, trying to understand how. Security works here. How you know what kind of who are the big players, um, and actually just trying to get out and meet people.
0: Mm -hmm. I've well, I've never worked in Toronto,
1: but we do Mm -hmm. have
0: an office in Toronto, and I've heard that the market is very similar to Dublin. Toronto is also quite small. Mm -hmm. From your perspective, have you found it quite to be quite similar, or is there a lot of difference between the two um, markets?
1: Mm-hmm. I suppose from the market perspective, it's probably a small city in North American terms, maybe not in comparison to Ireland, about four to five million people in the city. So it's about the size of our country. Um, so in that terms, it's definitely a lot bigger. But security being such a niche area, you tend to know, start to get to know the same, you know, see the same people at events. You start to hear the same names over and over again. So I would say the security market would be quite small. In terms of actually working there, uh, the work culture is probably probably the biggest difference. They would have a almost American style of work. They're a lot bolder than we are. They tend to work significantly longer hours, and it it was a culture shock going that way. And now it's been, as I said, a bit of a reverse culture shock coming this way.
0: Mm-hmm. And. I suppose we have to talk about your master's with security and And forensics, forensics, but also before that, your degree in linguistics and French. Mm -hmm. That's really unique because usually even in this market right now, Mm -hmm. you would see a lot of candidates who are focused just on digital forensics or computer Mm -hmm. science. What was that like, mixing linguistics as Mm -hmm. well as computer science?
1: Yeah, I I suppose when I first saw uh, my undergrad, which was the computer science linguistics in French, I didn't quite understand why they had put those things together. Mm -hmm. It suited me very well because those were all things I was interested in. As I went through the course, I started to understand, I suppose, the links between natural language and programming. And there were a lot of subjects in it that started to make a lot of sense as you got through the course. So we looked at things like machine learning and uh, AI. So suddenly you start to understand how a computer might learn, which then obviously you're learning on the human side of how a baby might learn language from its parents. So there's definitely a lot of similarities in those two things. Then going across to security and forensics, it was probably a lot more practical in nature. It was a lot more hands-on, and certainly less theoretical, um, and, th- and that suited me. I really wanted almost to to see the outputs of what I was doing, um, which I didn't really get from from the more sort of theoretical undergrad. But I think it's between the two courses it's given me such a broad range of topics and I feel that's helped me now in my career because I'm not really afraid to take on new things because I've tried a little bit of everything and you know I haven't stuck to a, a very strict path in terms of where I wanted to go so I find myself being quite open and flexible to where I might end up.
0: <laughs> and was security something that a field that you had always wanted to enter into from a young age?
1: Uh, Probably not. I I don't think I was even aware of it, if I'm honest. Me neither. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I didn't even know I wanted to do computer science until I kind of got there. I was always interested in technology but I wasn't aware of a lot of what was going on. I suppose, I think it's probably easier for now for kids growing up where they have obviously a lot more access to the internet. And um, I think parents are getting their kids into coding, at crazy young ages, you know. Code there's, a dojo, I think. Yeah, there's even now there's like toys for toddlers that they can code and things right. like that. So parents are very aware of getting their children into technology. My parents didn't know what it, you know, they didn't know much about uh, technology at the time. so. I wouldn't say it was a topic we often talked about, but even in computer science, I I don't think I was too aware um, of the security side. It wasn't something we touched on, but I always had an interest more, I suppose, in the investigation side of things and almost like the criminal aspect. So my alternative to actually going into computer science, I also wanted to be a pathologist. Yeah, so Mary Cassidy, who was the former forensic pathologist for Ireland, was a almost a hero for me. I, I just I loved to see her every time she was on the news. Um, so I always was interested in investigation. Decided not to go down the medical path, obviously, um, but I think that's what drove me then. To the forensic side of things, mm-hmm. um, I went on later. Then, just more for my own interest, to do a diploma in criminal psychology and criminology. And again, it's it's just my interest in that side of the the human psyche and why we do bad things. So that probably ties in nicely to security. You know, we're trying to constantly protect against you know people who want to take down our business and cause havoc so it all sort of dovetails nicely Mm -hmm. together
0: and I suppose later on we'll talk a little bit about your current role where you're working with CRH Mm -hmm. focusing on governance risk compliance but In the earlier part of your career, it wasn't always in risk and compliance, Mm -hmm. right? It was in threat intelligence, fraud. Um, This is a fairly new area where my previous speakers have not touched Mm -hmm. on. Would you be able to share with us a little bit more about the aspects of these two areas?
1: Yeah, sure. So I started off um, almost the day I walked into PwC working on investigations, basically. So generally uh, around the side of litigation. So either our company was being sued or we were working on behalf of either defense or prosecutors to help them build their, their case. So e-discovery as a topic, it's essentially the, so the legal side of it would be discovery, which is generally gathering all of the documents that may be relevant to a case in previous times that might have been uh, paper documents and you would have had to go through files and files to get the information you were looking for. Now, obviously, we talk in terms of e-discovery. So we're looking at emails. We may be looking at files on um, suspects' computers and things like that. So at PwC, I was working on some of Canada's largest investigations and litigations. It was a complete range in terms of the types of cases we were working on. Some of it was small level, maybe an employee was suing a particular company for some sort of HR related reason, unfair dismissal, that type of thing. So we were trying to gather evidence on behalf of either party. We also worked on some really interesting cases around anti-bribery and corruption. So looking at things like suppliers taking kickbacks that may have negatively impacted the company that we were working for. So over the couple of years I worked there, it was honestly, and I know everyone says, you know, I've I've worked on such a wide range of projects, but for me, it really was. I would spend my day jumping from case to case to case, and learning a whole lot about the Canadian legal system. So leaving PwC then, moving over to TD, I took on a role within fraud and financial crimes, but essentially what my role was, as somebody with a technology background, was being an intermediary between our fraud teams and our IT teams. Uh, so our IT teams were seeing issues around electronic fraud that they just They didn't really understand, or they would block to a certain point, but didn't know what follow-up steps to take uh, and how to stop this happening in the future. Our fraud teams then on the other side would have the issue that they just did not understand the technology behind this. because that wasn't their background, they would, you know, they had come from compliance or accounting backgrounds and had maybe never had any hands-on experience on the technology side. So it's a bit of a wild ride, I would say, in terms of the experience that I've been gaining over the past couple of years, which has now led me into a completely different role, still obviously within security, but now I'm more focused on the governance risk and best practice side of things.
0: Mm -hmm. How do you think your previous two roles have helped You prepare, well, obviously before you left Toronto, you wouldn't have known that you were going to take on this Mm -hmm. role today, but what do you think were some of the key skill sets that you took away with you from the two roles that has
1: helped you in your role today? Some of the experience that I've gotten over the last couple of years that I think has really helped me, starting out in working in a consulting firm, I got a huge exposure to multiple industries, to different types of companies, all different shapes and sizes, working with people at all levels uh, within those companies. And I think that experience has been invaluable, um, to be honest, especially at the company I'm working for right now. We're an international company. We own a large number of operating companies. So I'm very used to that atmosphere of being able to chop and change between the people that I'm working with, working with people internationally, whereas I feel a lot of people maybe if they haven't have had that kind of exposure, it may be something that frightens them a little bit. It's something that I very much got thrown in at the deep end with and, you know, it's sink or swim. And for me, obviously, luckily I swam, <laughs> um, but it, it, it's hard. And, you know, they, they put you in situations that they probably know that you're not going to be comfortable with but the lessons that you get from that are invaluable. Working then in the bank, I probably saw how, you know, anyone who's worked in a bank, you see how things should be done, the best ways of doing things. Uh, You're heavily scrutinized from a regulatory and compliance side. So that gives you, I suppose, the view of what are the best possible ways of doing everything, maybe generally on a limited budget, um, unfortunately within a lot of the banks now and now coming into a completely different industry. So I'm in the construction industry now. Security maybe isn't our you know the top priority for our businesses. So it's up to us to be able to convince our businesses that they do actually need some security, that they may be a target and convince them of things that maybe they've never thought about before.
0: And Well, what I would say to, you know, the point that you just mentioned is, especially from my point of view, recruiting, Mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. There are a lot of industries where if they're not as regulated as the financial sector, you wouldn't find as much of a focus on security. It's always Mm -hmm. going to be a case of, oh, sure, you know, that's not top priority. How do you think, and, you know, with your current role with CRH, how do you guys approach this with the business stakeholders? Because essentially the business is still in construction. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you find that there's a strong culture of security um, or a lot of people are still seeing it as a sort of cost center? And this is Mm -hmm. not
1: unique to just CRH, but perhaps just from your view of the industry. Mm -hmm. So... I think you're right. Security definitely is seen in a lot of businesses as a cost center. We're seen as a pain. We're almost, you know, as bad as the audit team coming in. People don't like to talk about security because they know they have to spend money. It's almost, I suppose, like the insurance industry. You're paying for something that you don't know is going to happen to you. I think a lot of industries and a lot of companies struggle with the idea of being the target of a breach. Everybody assumes it's not going to happen to me. What we're seeing now in manufacturing and construction is that larger manufacturers are starting to be targets of attacks. So we saw recently with Norse Hydro where it's it was a Norwegian aluminum company who were hit with a ransomware attack. And it completely took them down for days. They had to switch all of their plants into manual mode. It meant everybody from the offices walking into a plant, sticking on a hard hat, and helping out with the manual processes. So, and I think it cost them somewhere in the region of $400 million, I think, wow. over the course of the attack. So, But what we saw from them, what was great, is that they had the processes in place. Um, So they had their backup processes. I believe they didn't pay the ransom in the end uh, because they felt they didn't need to. They were well prepared and they were ready for this eventuality. So I think a big challenge for anyone is trying to convince businesses to actually put these processes and measures in place in order to protect themselves. What we're guilty, I suppose, as security people, is of always wanting to do the best and the right thing, and we maybe don't take into consideration what the business actually is asking for, or what the business want. We are maybe not proportional in the solutions that we provide to them. Uh, we may want the best, shiniest, newest tool, but it's not within their budget. And maybe it's a little bit overkill and they don't need that. So I think as security people, we need to step away from constantly thinking about just the technologies and actually looking at what does the business need, how are we going to help them, and moving away from this idea that we're going to constantly block everything that the business wants to do and we're always going to say no, and start working out how are we going to make the business succeed and add value from that side.
0: It's essentially
1: about managing
0: stakeholders. It's all Mm -hmm. about... I would say less so on focusing on the technical side of things. There's always going to be a role, someone who mm-hmm. has to focus on that, but the person who's really going to drive the program or who's going to get the budget approved mm-hmm. is the person who can get everyone in the room to walk them through why we need this, mm-hmm. You know why is it important and find, I suppose, a middle ground for both parties mm-hmm. to make exactly. that happen. Since you've been back, um, we were chatting a few weeks ago, you said that you've been attending a few um, events, Girls in Tech here as well. Mm -hmm. Did you attend something similar when you were in Toronto and what's was you know what been the biggest advantage on attending this? Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah, in, in Toronto I was part of a few groups, not necessarily female focused, but I was part of forensics groups, I was part of security groups. And again, that kind of ties back to my whole network. I had, I had this great network, not just within the companies I worked for, but I also used those groups to meet people that I would never normally meet in, in day-to-day work coming back here then I've looked for the same thing essentially I knew that was going to be a great way of starting to meet people I've found that there's maybe not as many and that's obviously going to be the case in a, you know a city of our size we're already in a niche area of IT and then trying to find groups within a smaller city is always going to be difficult What I have found is, as you said, I found uh, this group called Girls in Tech. So it's an international group. I think it was founded in San Francisco, which would make sense with most of these technology groups, but they're around the world and they essentially host, they host really interesting events. So I've been attending a few of their mentoring events where they'll bring in a few mentors and you get randomly assigned. So you don't get assigned to somebody in the same industry as you, um, or somebody that you you would normally have contact with. And you spend sort of an hour or two with a very free flow agenda, asking the questions you want to ask, helping other people out with their questions maybe that the mentor couldn't help with. Um, And it's been a great way of getting back into that networking side and starting to meet more people. And it's really well attended. The last one I was at was, there were about a hundred odd women at it maybe. Yeah, so there's plenty of women in technology, maybe security where, you know, there's probably less of us in that. Um, But there's certainly a lot of women in Dublin working in technology.
0: Mm -hmm. And do you find in this, I suppose what would be, for anyone who doesn't know about women in tech, what is the agenda and, the purpose of this event. Obviously, it's a networking mm-hmm. event, but what was it driven by originally?
1: I'm not sure what the overall sort of agenda for the organization was. The events that I attended, it's about getting women out of their comfort zone a little bit, trying to pass skills to each other, give each other tips and tricks helping women actually grow their networks. So maybe they don't feel like, you know, I'm the only woman in this, you know, in this industry and actually starting to make people realize that there's others out there. It's interesting at these mentor events, I've heard the same questions kind of come up over and over again. We all seem to struggle with the same problems. So it's been really interesting to kind of hear the answers that are coming back and then you see the same people at the next event and ask them, hey, did you apply you know, those couple of tips we talked about last time and and kind of see how that has gone for them. So they also do uh, hackathons every so often. So they did one um, a couple of months ago where they pick a local charity um, who has... A particular problem around technology, and these women get into groups basically and spend a weekend trying to solve the problems that these charities have. Um, so it's a really great community type of group as well.
0: And it's really putting you know everyone's skill sets mm-hmm. to good use. Is this an event for you know women who are experienced in the industry, or do you see a lot of sort of graduate level candidates who would be at this event mm-hmm. as well?
1: I've seen a complete mix. So the last one I was at, there was a girl there who was just, I think she had just finished her degree and she just didn't know where to go next. So she was looking for ways of getting hired. I think she had mentioned she'd sent out, you know, 30 or 40 CVs and gotten no responses. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to give her tips of, you know, maybe you try and meet someone for a coffee first before sending a CV and, you know, it may never get read. So we were trying to help her maybe not be so disheartened. Yep. Uh, by trying to find that first job uh, it might take a little while. You might have to go, go out there and meet more people. And then there's been people I've met who are 20 and 30 years in the industry, mm-hmm. so with yeah, it's a pretty wide range. Um, People from all aspects of tech as well. A lot of people there with more of a program developer background, other people there with, you know, maybe more on the legal side, myself then who would have more of a fraud and forensics background. So Mm -hmm. a a complete range of people, which is great.
0: That's actually, yeah, that's a a really nice event to go to. Mm -hmm. If you're someone in the industry. Because if we think about any organization, it's not made up of just people in security. Mm-hmm. It's made up of so many different roles and functions. Yeah. And sometimes if you're in a company, yes, you know you have to speak to your colleagues. But there are times when I'm sure that people who are like, you know what, I would rather have someone neutral, someone who's not from the company who can maybe give me an advice or give me their ideas and thoughts Mm -hmm. on this. And this is the kind of event where you get to network with someone from a different function Mm -hmm. and in time of need, you know, you might be able to reach out to them and say, hey, you know, I've got this question, what do you think? And bring it back to, I suppose, earlier when we mentioned how for you, you kind of fell into computer science and Mm -hmm. forensics felt like, you know, your love for investigations, I suppose, kind of led you to where you are today. I think a lot of in the industry and even from Singapore where, you know, when I was studying, I didn't know about IT security. Mm -hmm. How do you think or what do you think is the importance of starting at a young age, educating our next generation Mm -hmm. about information security?
1: Where a lot of maybe these women in technology programs have failed is that we've always looked at people who are already in industry. We may have looked at, you know, the 25 and 30 year olds and trying to get them into security. I think we have to get girls in at a younger age, interested in technology, interested in things like coding, or even just looking at other science subjects. So that, you know, the STEM subjects, giving girls that confidence that they can do it, you know, it It's maybe stereotypical that, you know, boys play with Lego and Meccano and all of those games where we give girls teddies and a doll and maybe a kitchen set and things like that. So it's giving girls these tools at a really young age to get them interested in seeing the world a little bit differently giving them the confidence to take subjects like science and maths that can get them into a technology course at a later age. I think these initiatives like coder dojo and and different courses that are going on are fantastic for getting girls interested. It makes technology seem really cool whereas maybe before, you know, years ago it was seen as a bit of a kind of nerdy geeky type of thing to get into. I think people are coming around to the idea now that, you know, technology is it's the place to be. Mm-hmm. It's where the world is going, and we need to build up their skills, build up their confidence to get into these subjects.
0: In my day to day, I'm speaking to a lot of candidates who are already in the IT field. Mm-hmm. They're not in security, they're trying to get into security. But, and this is something I've said before in previous episodes, it's something I find a lot of people are getting in not because they're passionate about security, mm-hmm. but just because that's probably where the money is at the moment. Yeah. You know, it's where that you will not have a shortage of jobs coming your way. Mm -hmm. Um, And to echo your point on starting early, if we can sort of nurture this interest from an early age, it's really going to change the way people think Mm -hmm. about security, not just as, you know, it's going to get me a job really quick, but rather this is something that's important to secure our future. Mm -hmm. You know, whether you're someone in your teenage years or someone who's been in industry for a long time this is something that's only going to keep going um cybersecurity 5 years ago and 5 years from now it's going to look so different mm-hmm. um what has been some of the most interesting as well stories that you could share with us in the last few years that you've been working in this field be it in threat intelligence fraud or even in
1: your current role mm-hmm. So one of my, I suppose, more memorable cases that I ever worked on, and I won't obviously name names and Mm. and these things all remain, uh, they tend to be pretty uh, confidential cases, but I'll give you the general gist of it. So we worked on a case for a large manufacturing company in the sort of retail space. And they had a really interesting case where they had these senior executives who they suspected were taking pretty large kickbacks from one of their suppliers overseas. And these guys, it was, it was an incredible case. The CEO took this case incredibly personally, which is maybe rare to see in these types of cases. It may be the IT manager who's helping out or things like that, people who aren't personally involved. But these executives were near and dear to him. They were almost treated like his his other sons. He had put a lot of their kids through college. He basically gave them everything they ever wanted. So he started to suspect then that they were taking pretty substantial kickbacks from the supplier. So we came in to help him figure out if this was true and start to actually have a look and see if we could follow the trace of money. So. Our role—it was—it it was probably one of the few where you know I, I think forensics often sounds maybe a lot sexier than it is on a day-to-day basis. The stories around our cases are very interesting, but maybe the the ins and outs of it, you know, maybe not quite as exciting. This was one where it was absolutely as exciting as it sounded. I felt like I was, you know, I was almost on CSI or yeah. something like that. And I was right in the mix of the investigation. So we essentially we got in Canada what's called a Norwich order. So you get basically a statement that from a judge that allows you to look into somebody's bank account. Obviously, you have to have a good reason. Okay. But we were able to start looking at their bank accounts and we were seeing millions and millions of dollars flowing through their accounts from these suppliers. A really exciting, you know, it's rare to say that you're excited about sort of working at 10 p.m. on a Saturday night, but we had one instance where it was the case that we managed to get these suppliers on the phone. We were able to record them and we got our whistleblower to actually chat through and ask the supplier outright, you know, oh, is John Smith taking money from you? Which account does it go to, you know? How much is he getting from you? And the supplier told him everything, basically over the phone as we wow. listened. So it was an incredible case. I was part of then the later interviews of all our suspects, which was just fascinating to to see someone who absolutely knew they had been they knew they had been found out. They were cornered. Um, obviously, we were an external firm coming in to look at this case. So it you know they absolutely knew that they were going down for this, but they denied it, flat out denied it. We showed them the money trace, we showed them printouts of their bank accounts. They said, nope, that, it never happened, it wasn't me. You know, I love the CEO, he's like a dad to me, and I would never do this. And it was just incredible to to watch how people can actually make their way through that situation and just, nope, nothing's happening and yeah. kind of- Slide your way through. Yeah, and it was just, it was almost like, he believed his own lies. It was fascinating yeah. to watch. And I was, I was really lucky. I was working on the case with a director in our group who had been, he had worked in the RCMP, which is the Canadian police force, as a detective. Um, and he had worked there for... 20-odd years before he had come over to PWC. So he had actually previously given us training on interview techniques that they use at the police. So being able to sit in a room and watch him use those techniques, obviously it was in a corporate setting, but it was just as exciting. Um, So it it was an incredible case. It always stands out to me as one of my favorite pieces of work that I've ever had.
0: That's like sitting through an actual... Episode of CSI, yep. like you said, and I love CSI. Um, yeah. I would have loved to be in that room. <laughs> yeah. And I suppose I, I've got one more question here that I was thinking about because you started in PwC, which mm-hmm. is a consulting firm. You said yep. one of the, you know, biggest advantage was that you got to work with different industries, mm-hmm. different clients. Um, but how was it? How different was it when you transitioned into TD Bank? Because mm-hmm. going from external to an internal role. I suppose with some of the candidates that I work with today or mm. just anyone in the market who might be in a consulting firm thinking about moving in-house what was the biggest transition mm. for you then?
1: Yeah I so I really enjoyed the transition over because I had spent so I had spent five years at PwC before I left and while I loved the excitement of You know, switching projects. Sometimes you're working on two or three projects at the same time for different companies. And I loved that excitement of it. I felt I never saw anything through to the end. So we would come in as the consultants, you know, we would figure out your roadmap, figure out all of the processes, and then say, well, okay, thanks very much. You know, maybe see you in a year or two. And we would almost never find out how things went, if what we had suggested, you know, if they had actually implemented anything. So suddenly moving over on, so what we called it over there, moving over to industry, I got that experience. I suddenly got to sit on two and three year projects, which I just was not part of at PwC. That those projects were fairly rare. So I went from working on something for four weeks to suddenly seeing out a project from all the way from the start and the pre-planning almost when it's just an idea and seeing it all the way through to the end which it was a completely different side of things. I decided moving back to Ireland that I wanted to stay on the industry side uh, which is what I have done but what I get I suppose that CRH now, I get a bit of a mix, just given the way that we're kind of set up as a company. We almost have, you know, our operating companies almost become our clients in a consulting, you know, in consulting terms. So I get the best of both worlds. I get to see projects long, yeah, see them out long term, but also get to interact with, you know, hundreds of operating companies across my time there. So yeah, it- essentially for me, it's the best of both worlds.
0: And... What do you, What are you excited about for the next 12
1: to 18 months? Personal side, you know, going to these girls in tech events, while that does a lot for me, for myself on a professional level, I would like to get more involved in initiatives that are helping maybe younger girls get into technology. You know, a year has flown by, but I think now that I feel a lot more settled, I feel settled, you know, on a personal level, I feel settled in a professional level it's time to start branching out now and to actually take part in these initiatives to meet more people and start to practice what i've what i preach i suppose so i'd like to start taking part in those kind of initiatives i think you know in a professional level i'm in a really lucky position right now where you know security has only been on the roadmap for the past sort of four or five years within our company and people are really starting to take note and we can feel that the sort of the wheels are in motion and people are starting to listen, people are starting to understand what we are trying to push in terms of security and they get it and they want to be part of it. So I think there's a lot of exciting things coming down the down the path on the professional side as well.
0: Lydia, I thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Women in Security podcast brought to you by Morgan McKinley. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. My name is Lee and we'll chat soon.